You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, well, as I mentioned, Tim is gone today, so uh, I decided that I could do one of two things. I could come up with a lesson to teach you today, or I could take the easy route and do a question and answer, which we haven't done for almost a year. So I chose, instead of doing a question and answer, which would have been the easy route, to come up with a lesson for today. So we're not going to be doing a Q&A, but we are going to be doing something um, kind, of, uh, uh, kind of connected to what we've been going through on Sunday mornings with the Gospel of John. Um, was it a couple of weeks ago we talked about how, how do we view and deal with supposed contradictions between gospel accounts and the gospel writers. So I want to talk about what principles we use and what sort of, what sort of uh, parameters we use in looking at the various gospel accounts that seem to contradict one another. When you read Mark's, Matthew and Mark and John's account of X event, each of them describes something different and, uh, a lot of times skeptics, atheists, agnostics, and even Muslims will point to the differences between the gospel writers and say, see, this is proof that there are contradictions in the gospel. And so I want to talk about today, what, how do we handle those? How do we view those? What things do we bring to the table when we are trying to resolve these conflicts? Are they genuinely contradictions that are proof of no divine inspiration with the gospel writers or proof that the gospel writers got some historical things wrong? Or... Uh, are these events, are these things, are there ways of looking at this to harmonize the differences between the gospel writers? So that's what we're going to be talking about. And then when we get done with this, we're going to go into a look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's account of the triumphal entry and look at one of these examples of a difference in the way that the gospel writers describe the event and then ask ourselves, okay, how do we harmonize, harmonize these four uh, narratives? Some of the differences, uh, let me, let me give you an example of one of them, uh, the resurrection account. There's one of the gospel writers that mentions two angels at the tomb, one of the gospel writers that only mentions one angel at the tomb. Is that a contradiction? You see that as a contradiction? Or is there a way of understanding that and their description of the events surrounding the tomb of Jesus that would allow us to harmonize one angel and two angels? Now you understand what a contradiction would be. A contradiction would be if one gospel writer says, on that day, at this location, at this time, there were two angels. And another gospel writer said there was not two angels, there was only one angel. That would be a contradiction. But that's not what the gospel writers say. One gospel writer mentions two angels. Another gospel writer only mentions one angel who says something. Doesn't mention that there was a second angel. Doesn't mention that there was not a second angel. Well, that's not a necessary contradiction. Some of the things that we... So some of the things that we typically think of as contradictions are not necessarily contradictions. Sometimes they are just gospel writers or writers in the Bible describing the event from two different perspectives. So let me give you an example of some of the things that, that um, some of the ways that the gospel writers describe events that leads us to think or lead some people to think that there are contradictions. One of them is the order of events. There are different orders of events in the gospels. So if you pick up a harmony of the Gospels, for instance, uh, where all four uh, all four Gospels are put into a harmony, do you understand what a harmony of the Gospels is? So it's a side-by-side, column-by-column comparison. And you pick up a harmony of the Gospels and you start to read through it, you will notice that some of them will have Mark, 
such and such a chapter before uh, Mark such and such a chapter, which is actually an earlier chapter. So they might, I'm just giving you an example here. This is not a true life example, but just a potential. You have Mark 11, the events of Mark 11 recorded, and then say 18 months later, the events of Mark 9 recorded. And sometimes Gospels are harmonized in that way because they're the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John will not all the time put things in the same order, the events in the same order. How do we deal with that? Another way, another example of that is details in the events. Sometimes gospel writers include certain details. Other gospel writers include certain other details. And a third one is the words that are used in quoting. And this is the example that we're going to look at from the triumphal entry later on. Sometimes a gospel writer will say, Jesus said this. Let's say Matthew. Matthew says, Jesus said, and he will quote. And we put quotation marks around it, and we put it in red letters. Jesus said, comma, quotation mark, red letters, and quotation mark. And then Matthew, describing the very same conversation or the very same words, will sometimes use an entirely different phrasing of the same thing that Jesus said. The substance is the same, but the words are different. And Mark will say, Jesus said, comma, quote, red letters, close quote. And then Luke will describe the very same thing, but he will use an entirely different quotation from Jesus. Is that a contradiction? And if you put all of them side by side, they all read a little bit differently. Some people look at that and say, that's a contradiction. The Gospel writers are contradicting each other. One says, quote this, another says, quote that, another says, quote this, and they're all different. So what do we do with these and how do we reconcile them? Let me give you a few principles before we look at the the case of the triumphal entry. The very first thing that we do is we always give the writer the benefit of the doubt. We do this with every writing that you pick up, every book that you pick up. If you are reading in chapter 1 and you read something, you think the the writer is saying this, and then in chapter 6 you are reading and he seems to say something different than he said in chapter 1, what do you naturally do in that case? You will naturally flip back to chapter 1 and you'll reread it again and say, huh, so he says this here, and then in chapter 6 he says this here. It seems like he's saying two different things. You will always give the writer the benefit of the doubt and ask yourself the question, is there a way of understanding what he's saying in chapter 1 and understanding what he's saying in chapter 6? Is there a way of understanding these things that is not contradictory? We will always naturally look for the way of understanding the author that is not necessarily a contradiction. We always give the author the benefit of the doubt. We assume that he understands what he wrote in chapter 1 and that he's not stupid enough to contradict himself in chapter 6. Thomas, did you have a question? And by the way, I'm welcoming questions here for this. Go ahead, go ahead, yeah. Yeah, we do in the ways that I'm about to describe in just a second. The question was, you have two writers, do you always give them the benefit of the doubt? Okay, so Thomas says from the non-Christian's perspective, they don't follow that rule. And you're right, they don't follow that rule with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John or any of the other uh, 40 writers of the Bible. But they do follow that rule in every other book that they read. Because we naturally follow that rule. When we read something in the newspaper and we say, well, it says this here. Well, I get newspaper. We grew up with the Daily Beast, so you got to be careful. But if, you, if a normie, you're reading the Wall Street Journal, for instance, and you read on page one an account of this, and you read on page five an account of this, and they seem to contradict each other, you always try and find a way. Is there a way of understanding this event described by two different authors in the same newspaper in a way that doesn't necessarily contradict itself? We assume that the editor or that the author has read his own work, he's writing his own work, and he's not out there just throwing information in that naturally contradicts itself. We always give the benefit of the doubt to the author, understanding the author is an intellectual person who saw this or is writing about this, he knows what he's talking about, and we presume that he's not going to contradict himself. And when we see something that we see as a contradiction, we always try and harmonize it naturally. So we always give the benefit of the doubt to the author. We don't assume that he's contradicting himself. We don't assume that he is ignorant, or we don't assume that he got facts and details wrong. We always assume the best. 
We do that with everything that we read, by the way. Does that answer your question? Okay. Number two, we always seek to understand how they can both be true. So whenever we see a contradiction, we don't throw up our hands and say, well, therefore, the gospel writers, the, the, the gospel writers contradicted themselves. We don't do that. We always take two events and we ask ourselves, if they're both describing the same event, is there a way in which, is there a way that this event could have unfolded in which both of their descriptions of this event could be different, but true? Not contradictory, different, but true. So we always seek to find a way of harmonizing it before we jump to the conclusion they got facts wrong. We always seek to harmonize it or we seek to understand it in a way that both accounts can be true. A third principle is this. We always seek to understand the point of each author. When when Matthew, and I've mentioned this as we've gone through the Gospel of John, when Matthew wrote his Gospel, he didn't just sit down and say, okay, where should I begin? How about the virgin birth? That's a good place to begin. We'll start with that. Tell them about the virgin birth. Then what's next? Well, we could skip over about 30 years and jump into the temptation of the wilderness. That'll make a good start for chapter 4. And uh, Oh, there's that Sermon on the Mount thing. i got to make sure I include that. And I don't want to miss the account of all the healings in chapters 8 and 9. And well, there's those, all those good parables. I'll throw that into chapter 13. That's not how Matthew did it. He just come down, come up with a list of things to write. When Matthew sat down to write his gospel, he sat down and, and he had an intended audience. What was the audience? Jews. He had an intended point. What was the point? To show that Jesus Christ was the son of David, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, the long-expected coming king and redeemer. That's what he was trying to prove. So then what Matthew did, knowing his audience and knowing the goal of his writing, he sat down to collect material about the life of Jesus from eyewitnesses and from his own eyewitness account and put that together in a way that would explain to his intended audience the point he was trying to make. When Mark sat down, Mark sat down and he was writing on behalf of Peter, who's one of the eyewitnesses. So when Mark sat down, Mark doesn't have the same audience that Matthew is writing to. Mark is not geared to the same thing. Matthew is presenting Jesus as king. Mark is presenting Jesus as a man. And Mark is a very fast-paced gospel. It's a shorter gospel. It's the shortest of all four gospels. And Mark uses the word immediately and, and, and right away, constantly through his gospel. Go through the gospel of Mark and look at the word, look up the word immediately and just watch for the word immediately and you will see that That's how Mark does his gospel. One thing right after the other, very short accounts. What is Mark trying to show? Mark is trying to show Jesus as being busy. He is a servant. He is a man. He's washing feet. He's serving people. He's doing miracles. He is the suffering servant. That's Mark. When Luke writes his gospel, he is writing to an entirely different audience. He's writing to Gentiles. Luke wrote under the auspices of the Apostle Paul. He wrote two books, a quarter of the New Testament, Luke and Acts. They go together. One is a sequel to the other. And by the way, you can tell that they are the same, written by the same author, not just because they have the same introduction, but because Luke, uh, Luke's style is unique. It is written to Gentiles. It's very Gentile-oriented. Why? Luke was a what? Luke was a Gentile. And he's writing under the auspices of the apostle to the Gentiles. He has a totally different audience involved, a whole, whole different audience in mind. So when Luke writes his gospel, he is showing Jesus as, uh, as the, uh, the redemption, the plan of Jesus as being more than just to the Jews, that he's more than just king, he's also a man, he's also his humanity. Luke was a doctor, so Luke includes all kinds of details that would catch the eye of a doctor. Now when John writes his gospel, John is familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's writing much later, John knows the material on those three gospels, and John puts together a gospel that is largely unique in its contents. There are a few things that are mentioned in the other gospels, but John skips over massive periods of time in the life of Jesus and spends long, long chapters talking about single events. 
John gives us all kinds of detail about things. And John is not writing to necessarily Jews or Gentiles. How do we know that? Because there are certain Jewish expressions that he sort of takes for granted and he understands Jews would understand this. He doesn't explain them. There are other Jewish expressions where John will give sort of a little parenthetical author's notation to describe this to Gentiles who might not quite understand this. So John has a mixed audience. And what is John's purpose? John's purpose is to show that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal word who was made flesh, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and that he is very God of very God. And he is the infinite creator of all things. So each one of those gospel writers has a different audience with a different intention, and they collect together different material. So when we seek to harmonize the gospel writers, what are we trying to do is we're trying to understand the unique theological perspective, the unique point of each author, and the unique audience of each author. And so then as we look at the different details, we say, okay, well, this would fit well with how this author is describing this event because he has this goal in mind. Any questions about that? Okay, so we always seek to remind ourselves they're not all writing to the same audience. They're not all writing with the same point or the same purpose. So they're putting together their Gospels for a, an aim. They have one specific thing in mind, and we need to keep that thing in mind when before we allege that they are contradicting themselves. Carol? Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospel. Yeah, John evidences, and I pointed this out as we've gone through, there are little things in John's Gospel which are evidences that he was familiar with the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke included. It's kind of something that we infer not only from the later date of John, uh, I think pre-70, um, the later date of John, but also the fact that he does give us entirely unique details than Matthew, Mark, and Luke did. All right, number four. We consider the nature of ancient writings, particularly the Gospels. Uh, we remember that when we read the Gospels, we are not reading we are not reading books that are intended to be taken strictly chronological. Are they chronological? For the most part. But there are parts of the Gospels that are not chronological. Sometimes the Gospel writers would include events or sayings of Jesus. They would collect things over, say, a longer period of time and group them together according to theme in the Gospel to show how this thing was unfolding in the life of Jesus and how you could trace the themes. They are chronological, but they're also thematic, and they're also theological. So the Gospel writers did not necessarily this and then this and then this and be taken in a strict, literal, chronological fashion. There are certain things that a Gospel writer will include at one point that chronologically doesn't fit there, but theologically it does. But that's the intention. It's not that they're misrepresenting the point. It's that the Gospel writers did not intend to be taken strictly chronological. That's what we have to keep in mind. The Gospel writers did not write their Gospels trying to intend them to be taken strictly chronological. Neither did the readers intend to read the Gospels and understand them as strictly chronological because that's not how people wrote, that's not how people thought, and that's not how people read in the ancient. So we have to keep in mind the nature of the writings themselves. They're not strictly chronological. And the other thing to keep in mind, particularly with the Gospels, is what it meant to quote somebody in ancient literature. Today, when the Daily Bee is describing something and they quote somebody and they put quotation marks around it, what do we in our culture, what do we assume? That it's an exact quotation. And we understand that the writer intends for us to understand that as a direct quotation. And we understand that the writer intends to represent a direct quotation because in our context, in our culture, when you say, he said this, and you put quotes around it, and you publish that, if you are wrong, what happens? You get sued, right? 
You better be able to quote the individual word for word exactly and be able to prove that this is what they said or you're going to be sued or somebody's going to accuse you of lying or misrepresenting the truth. How do we view quotations in our culture? If you put quotation marks around it, it must be exact. That's what we assume. That's what the writers assume. That's what the publishers assume. How did the ancients in the first century, actually, how did they up until, uh, I don't know, for hundreds of years even after Jesus, how did they view quotations? It was entirely different. In the ancient world, if you said, he said, and then you stated it, all you got to do is get the gist of it right. And you have accurately represented what he said. If I paraphrase something to you, and I say, my wife said to me this morning, and I paraphrase something to you, if I haven't quoted her exactly, but I have communicated to you basically the gist of what she said, I have quoted her in the ancient sense. I haven't used word-for-word quotation marks, but I've given the gist, the meaning, the essence of what she said. I may switch her words around. I may state it differently than she did. I may use words that she didn't even use, but I have communicated to you the essence of what was said. That's how the ancient writers quoted people. They didn't use exact quotation marks. Does everybody understand that? you understand the difference between those two? So when Matthew wrote his Gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they all said Jesus said this, and they're all three different quotations from Jesus, do we allege that they are contradicting themselves? No, we say Matthew is basically summarizing what Jesus said, emphasizing this unique aspect of what Jesus said, for his point. Mark says this is what Jesus said. It's different. He uses different words. But Mark is emphasizing something else in the quotation. And then you got Luke who says something entirely different. He uses a few different words, kind of puts things in different order. But Luke is giving the essence of what he said. And you look at all three of them. Do they all communicate the gist of what was said? Yeah, pretty much. They pretty much all kind of get it right. They're within the ballpark. And that is what Jesus said. So what is inspired in Scripture? Is it the... Not to be careful with this. What is inspired in Scripture? Is it the quote-unquote words that are communicated that the speaker actually said when he said this? Or is it the words that the Gospel writers used to communicate what was said? It is the words that the Gospel writers used to communicate what he said. So, if Matthew does not exactly quote Jesus, it's not the quotation of Jesus, what was actually said that is inspired. It is what Matthew wrote that Jesus said that was actually inspired. Even if it is not word for word identical to the absolute very word jot and tittle of what Jesus said. Does that make sense? Carol? It is exactly what God, the the product that we have by inspiration is exactly what God intended for us to have. And so what we need to remember is that in real time, when Jesus was standing there and giving the Sermon on the Mount, it may have been, it was divine proclamation. It was the Word of God because He was speaking it. But are we the lesser if Matthew takes that sermon, which may have gone on for much longer than it takes to read the Sermon on the Mount, are we the lesser, are we, are we poorer off because Matthew took that lengthy sermon and condensed it down to its essential elements and summarized it and quoted Jesus for three chapters? But we don't have exactly word for word what Jesus said. We probably have something pretty close. But we don't have word for word what Jesus said. Does that mean that therefore we do not have anything that is a product of inspiration in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? doesn't mean that at all. We have exactly what God wanted us to have, the exact, the exact writing down of exactly what Jesus did say. Matthew captures what was actually said. Not word for word. Matthew captures what was actually said. Under inspiration of God, he captures it, and what we have is the product of divine inspiration. And we can say, this is what Jesus said, and we can quote that. 
Because he did say it. That is the word of God and that is what Jesus said. But we have to keep in mind how the ancients viewed quotations. That's the whole point of that. Any questions before we move on? All right. Number five, we consider God's purposes in having four independent records. If we had four gospel writers that were all basically photocopies of one another, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if we had that, four photocopied accounts, what would we, what, what could we say about that? What would we conclude? First of all, the three of them are unnecessary, right? I mean, if, if you turned to Matthew and you read Matthew and then you flipped over to Mark and it was the exact same thing word for word for 28 chapters, we would conclude, well, Mark is unnecessary and so is Luke and so is John. We have Matthews, so we don't need four absolutely identical Gospels. What we do have in the purpose of God is exactly what He intended to give us. Four very independent accounts of the life of and the ministry and the teachings of Jesus. Four very independent accounts. If we had in the Gospels, if we had in our New Testament, four Gospel writers who were all the same, there's another thing that skeptics would conclude. Can you imagine what it would be? They copied each other, right? There's collusion. These guys are colluding together to make sure they have the details right and to deceive us. So if you have, if you have three kids and they were involved in some shenanigans and then you go to the first one and you say, tell me what happened and they give you right down the line. And then you come to the second one. Tell me what happened. Uh, okay. And they give you right down the line. You come to the third one. What happened? Um, start at the beginning. Here we go. And they go right down the line. Three identical stories. What do you conclude? These guys are colluding together to make sure they get their story straight. They're not giving me actual truth. They're giving me talking points. They're giving me the official narrative. They're giving me what they, they want the, me to believe happened here amongst the three of them. We... Assume collusion. One of God's purposes in giving us four independent accounts is, is so that we might see that the gospel writers did not sit down and collude this. If, if you were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John sitting in a room saying, let's write four different gospels, don't you think that the four of them would have ironed out these supposed contradictions and differences in their details? Don't you think that would have been their natural tendency to do that? But they're not. These guys are writing miles from each other and years apart from each other. They're writing for the purpose of giving us four independent accounts, not to give us four identical accounts. And by the way, in having four independent accounts, they give us a fuller understanding of each one of the events that they do that they do report on. Um, let me see, I got about 15 minutes here. Okay, so let's, let me give you an illustration. I get, now I gave you an illustration a couple weeks ago with the anointing, which is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and John. Um, with that anointing, I gave you this illustration. I want you to imagine that you. This is for those of you who might not have been here or have forgotten already. Uh, imagine that you are sitting there watching this unfold at the home of of uh, Simon in Bethany. And Jesus is there. The disciples are there. A lot of people are there. you got servants. There's a lot going on. It's a big meal. It's a lavish meal. It's fellowshipping going on. Mary pours out that vial of ointment on him. And they have a, a whole discussion about about the value of the oil and the poor and the, the, the temporary nature of Jesus being there and that he is going to die and that he is leaving soon. There's all of this discussion. you got resentment of the disciples, resentment of people who are there, uh, controversy and discussion going on. This might have drawn out over the course of a whole evening or a whole meal. And then you are there and you later on are going to write the newsletter, newspaper account of that and you have to capture the theological and historical significance of that event in 175 words, which is longer than the longest description we have in any of the four Gospels. You have to capture all of that in 175 words. Would you be able to do that? Do you think that you might leave some details out? You would, right? 
Now, if you had four people doing that and you read all four accounts right next to each other, would any of the four of them be identical to each other? You put them all in four rooms immediately after the event. Say, write down, capture in less than 175 words the theological and historical significance, the redemptive significance of that event. Would you have any four of them agree in all the details? No, you wouldn't. You might have. It's amazing that we have Matthew, Mark, and John who agree as much as they do on the details of that event. Because all three of them can describe that event, that evening, from three entirely different perspectives, including all kinds of different details, each of them emphasizing something different, and yet all of them would be true. So let me give you a second illustration. I want you to imagine that there is an accident, a five-car pileup. There we go. Imagine that there is an accident, a five-car pileup in downtown Sandpoint. And the police officer shows up, and he takes the... the uh, He gets the details of this entire accident from the business owner who owns the business on the corner of the street where there was this five-car pileup, who had his back turned to the accident when it happened. He heard the screeching and the clashing. He turned around, and he watched what unfolded after that. The police officer gets the report from a passenger, one of the passengers in one of the cars. He gets the report from the driver of one of the other five cars, And then he gets the report from a pedestrian who was walking by, walking his dog, talking to his neighbor uh, on the street, looking in in shop windows as this whole thing kind of happened in their peripheral vision. He has four reports, the pedestrian, the passenger, a driver, and a business owner. Do you think that there will be differences in the description of that one event from each of their four perspectives? Are those four reports all going to be word-for-word identical? No. So would the police officer, in taking those four reports of that one incident, would the police officer then assume that one, two, three, or all four of these people are lying? Would the police officer assume that they are intentionally misrepresenting facts or that they are getting the facts about the case wrong? Would he assume any of that? Or would the police officer assume that each one of these witnesses to this incident is giving us the details? even some of the minutest details from their unique perspective from exactly what they saw unfold in front of their eyes. And that they could be four grossly, entirely different accounts of that same incident and all four of them be true at the same time. Does that make sense? So when we have four different gospel writers who all describe the same event differently, we assume the same thing. Matthew, when he watched this, is describing this part of it. And Luke, when he watched this unfold, he's, he saw this. And, and Mark, when, when he details this event, this is what captures his attention. And John, he sees this, and, and man, he, what he saw was this. And all four of them can give us four different accounts, or four accounts of the same event, including different details. They sound like they contradict, but they don't contradict at all. We just assume that they are all telling us the truth, and we find a way in which this event could have unfolded, where all four of these men are telling us the, the, the exact truth. And none of them got any details wrong. They're just emphasizing different details. One's mentioning this, another's mentioning that. Okay, that was kind of an information dump or no? Did you take all of that for granted already? There's no new information, there's some new information that was helpful. Are you guys ready to do a case study then? Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to divide you into groups, but not for the purpose of you getting together. I want, uh, see, how will we do this? Let's have... Uh, Let's have everybody on this side, Sean and forward. I want you guys to look up and get in your Bibles, Matthew 21, Matthew chapter 21. 
Um, Rick and forward on this side. You guys look up Mark 11. Everybody who is behind them in the back, look up Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Mark 11, 1. Matthew 21, 1. Luke 19, 28 in the back. And I'm going to flip to the book of John. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read Matthew 21. The reason I had you guys look at one uh, so that a group of you can be looking at one of the Gospel writers while you hear the other three read. This is the triumphal entry. This group is going to be looking at a different Gospel writer while you hear the other three read. And the back is the same. And, and then all of you will be looking at your separate accounts while you hear John. So I want you, as I'm reading each account, to be comparing it just as you're reading through following me in a different Gospel, comparing the details a little bit differently. Uh, comparing the details in the different Gospels. So Matthew 21, 1. And I will read it 1 through 11. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a beast, a burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Now, with, with here's here's our case study. I want you to pay attention particularly to what the crowd is shouting, because it's different in each of the four Gospels. Pay attention to what the crowd is shouting. In Matthew, here's what it says. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now I'll read Mark's account. Mark chapter 11, verses 1-11. through 11. So if you're in Matthew, just be listening to this. Compare what is said by the crowd with what you hear in Mark. Mark 1, as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. And those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Did Matthew say that? No, people looking at Matthew, they you're comparing it, they don't say that, does it? Blessed is you come blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Matthew doesn't include that. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. Alright, now look over your account where you have your Bible open as I read Luke chapter nineteen. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. 
If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in in heaven and glory in the highest. Now Luke is different than Matthew and Mark, isn't it? Now over to the Gospel of John chapter 12. So now you watch what the crowd says in in the Gospels that you're at while I read John chapter 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet Him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now you'll notice that not only is what John reports the crowd saying different, but even John has the order different, right? He has the shouting of the crowd first, then he found a donkey. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all include the account of Jesus saying to the disciples, go find the donkey. And yet John seems to say that Jesus found the donkey. Was Jesus the one that found the donkey? Is that a contradiction? Or did Jesus send the disciples out to find the donkey for, on, for his behalf? Then Jesus did find the donkey, but he used the disciples to do it. So what do we make of the different quotation? This is one of the ways in which the gospel writers differ is, differ is the way that they quote things. What are we to do with these four different quotations? Each one of those quotations of the crowd is different. So let's apply the principles that we've already gone over to explain how it is possible for for all of this to take place just as each one of these four men recorded, even though they record something entirely different. How is that possible? Any suggestions? Okay. Diana says it's not that it's not true. It's just the way we describe it. Each of us describes the event differently. Very good. Any other suggestions? Yeah, very good. Each writer saw details in there that was more important than the others. Okay, Jerusalem, you're going to find out today, um, during the sermon, Jerusalem at the time of the Passover could have been filled with as many as two and a half million Jews during a Passover. That's a lot of people. A lot of people. That's a lot of people inside the city of Jerusalem. That's a lot of people outside the city of Jerusalem. It's a lot of people from between Jerusalem and Beth, Paj and Bethany where this triumphal entry took place. Don't you think that it's possible that at different points during this whole event, which didn't happen in a matter of three minutes, Don't you think it's possible that at different points during this whole event that the crowd might have been shouting different things? Could have been, right? The crowd may have seen him and they start off chanting one thing and before long it's a different chant. Have you ever been to a football game? A live football game like an NFL football game that the crowd chants different things at different times, right? During a three-hour course of a three-hour event. And if if one person who was there said the crowd was chanting this, uh, uh, first down, first down, and another person says the crowd was chanting defense, defense, Are they contradicting each other? No, they're describing the behavior of the crowd at different points during this long protracted event. Same thing with the triumphal entry. This is not a contradiction between what the crowd is saying. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all recording what the crowd said, basically quoting them, they're giving the gist of it, and the emphasis and the meaning of what they were quoting, and all of them are catching probably different things spoken by the crowd over the course of this whole event. So is there a contradiction there? Did one of the gospel writers get the details wrong? No. Not at all. That's how we harmonize things like that in the Gospels. Okay, our time is up. It went faster for me, faster for me than it did for you, I'm sure. Any questions before we close?
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.